like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we gather today. And I pay my respects to their elders, past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples here today. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Inspired by Yarra. This is the podcast that's been created to enhance, connect and inspire the Yarra Valley Grammar community and beyond. So wherever you're listening from today, I want to say thank you. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for coming along for the ride. My name's Paul Joy and as the host of this podcast, it is my privilege and my pleasure to sit down with another Yog, a Yarra Old Grammarian, each episode. And it is a privilege to be able to share their stories here on this podcast. And today I'm going to share with you a conversation that I had with Andrew Morrow from the class of 1984. He's from a different generation. He arrived midway through year nine for what is many people one of the toughest years of schooling, socially and academically and acceptance-wise, and he was challenged in the midst, but and yet landed on his feet. Really appreciate his ability to reflect, to consider, to wonder about his journey, and to impart and share the wisdom along the way, and his newfound appreciation for his own journey and the willingness to share that, and now the investment in seeking to find ways to contribute to the lives of others. I think you're going to enjoy his or our conversation as we uh, reflect on sport and career and working with your hands and fatherhood and future and travel and the tastes and sights and sounds of the world. Andrew Morrow from the class of 1984, I begin this conversation by asking him when in fact he did come to Yarra. When did his Yarra Valley Grammar journey begin? Um, I actually came through halfway through the year. Um, I was uh, year nine, uh, ended up halfway through year nine. I think my parents had me down for year 10 and um, someone left halfway through the year and we got a phone call uh, with about two weeks uh, notice and said, there's an opportunity if you want to take it. Otherwise, I think I was still at number six on the list. Um, So I don't, I just remember the parents saying, it's probably a good idea to uh, take it, you know, um, rather than try and wait to the end of the year. So I came through, I knew one, uh, one guy um, that I used to, I played uh, tennis with on a uh, Sunday coach uh, coaching uh, and knew no one um, in year nine. So it was, um, I don't remember it being um, that stressful or daunting, um, although it did probably manifest uh, probably another year down the track uh, through a little bit of stress and that, that uh, I didn't really appreciate through migraines and that, but uh, it was, uh, it was a fairly um, smooth transition, I suppose. I found that I was probably about six months behind in academic, uh, academically. So although I was, you know, at that stage, you know, doing okay, um, Yarra was from where I'd come from a um, Bayswater High School, the state system, uh, probably about six months ahead. So took a little bit of lunchtime, uh, a few extra classes at lunchtime for that um, second half of year nine to probably uh, catch up uh, to where everything was at. So. And do you have a sense that that's why your parents were interested in making a move to Yarra? Because there was a sense that that perhaps you had a little bit of improving to do fairly quickly? Yeah, look, 
to be honest, the, the main reason was um, the principle had changed at um, Bayswater um, High probably about four or five years ago. So the quality of the um, of the you know, the teachers and that I I'd spent um, probably uh, the first six weeks of year nine without an English teacher. Um, she was on maternity leave, didn't come back, and there wasn't a replacement teacher. So we literally had three classes for about the first term. Um, maths was nearly the same. So all of a sudden it was a bit of like, geez, um, we're going to struggle with um, the quality of um, or the commitment because we didn't know at that stage whether it was going to be how long the principal was going to be there. So it seemed to that's where the school was on a bit of a downhill turn from where it had been. It had been a reasonably good um, public school um, probably Ten years before, so yeah, it was it. It was that. So it was a big decision for my parents. Um, being pretty well um, kind of working class, mum had to go back to work to literally pay for it. Um, so it was a big commitment for her. Um, yeah, so that was, uh, and it was just that it was more just the opportunity from what they could see. The um, academic opportunity was uh, going to be a lot greater than uh, where we were. And you're right, there's a whole lot wrapped up in a decision like that, isn't there? There's the commitment of the family to be able to afford to be able to do that. There's also got to be a willingness from the young person. I mean, I've been around schools a long time. I've worked with Year Nines. I know a lot of Year Nine kids who would be wrapped at the idea of a couple of free lessons every time you've got English or maths. or and And somewhere along the line, you've taken on board that actually this is not as good as it probably should be. Um, I'm open to going to this new school, only know one bloke, but I'm going to put myself way out of my comfort zone. I'm really rapt to hear that it was so smooth, at least initially. Yeah, I think, it, look, um, I'm fairly easygoing. Um, I think um, I love sport, and I think that was certainly a way um, to actually get into the community, um, the Year 9 uh, group. So... Um, uh, I think um, yeah, sport does that in many different facets of life. If um, if you can join a team and be part of that team component, it certainly uh, helps fit in. Um, so that enabled me to, to get in, I suppose. Um, and I it, think yeah. there's no doubt it, it helps for sure, particularly amongst the boys. I think and 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 that might be a bit gender stereotypical, but but certainly back in those days, if you could catch a ball, if you could kick a footy, if you could hit a ball, then you, you've got some standing somewhere at least. So if you were playing sport, what sort of environment were you in? Were you on a court? Were you on the oval? Were you indoors, outdoors? What was your sport? So I was pretty fortunate I got on well with most sports, but I played uh, in the Yarra Valley uh, tennis team in summer and I played uh, soccer in uh, in winter. So um so that was kind of the, the main uh, the main two sports that I followed all the way through. And is there a particular scene, a moment, match point, or you kicked the winning goal, or was there a big save that you did? Was there a moment in your sporting career at Yarra that uh, jumps to mind when you think of highlights? I'll give you two, one at the bottom and one at the top. So <laughs> I, um, I was uh, at tennis. I remember playing... Um, uh, I think it was down at um, it might have been Ivanhoe, and I got done nine nil <laughs> in singles. So I, I still remember that one. But I remember in year ten, I got a um, I got asked to play up in the in the uh, 
in the I can't remember what you call it, year twelve um, or the the senior team in in the ones the eighteen in the one team yeah so I got to play a half so we we played because we're both both playing at the same um, venue I played uh, in year ten um, at say ten thirty and at eleven eleven thirty or whatever I played the first half and my last kick of the in that half I um, I kicked over keeper's head and put it in for a goal. Remember going home and you know, no mobile phones during that stage. I didn't know what the score was until I got back to school on uh, Monday morning and found out that we lost four uh, one. But at least <laughs> so my uh, my one boot um, at least got on the scorecard. So that was uh, yeah, I still remember that one. <laughs> and and surely there's the conversation with the coach that says, Coach, if you'd left me on for the second half. We might have had a chance. I was, although uh, a bit overawed, I think that I'd actually been because uh, I wasn't a big kid, um, but um, I was. Uh, there was another mate of mine, Ross Cameron, so he was captain of the year ten, and I was the vice captain. So, um, but yeah, something uh, showed out for the, um, the the ones, the coach, and uh, and obviously they were short, <laughs> so so that helped. <laughs> but you, you've got to when you've got to take your opportunity, don't you? And uh, and and sounds was that the only goal you kicked? Ever? No, no, because then uh, obviously I went through. I mean, Ross and I ended up being uh, captain and vice captain in the ones uh, the following year. So I did. Um, I played actually more midfield um, when I was um, at, at Yarra. So probably only, probably only kicked one or two other goals after that. So it was a bit of a bit of a fluke, I suppose. Oh, no, 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 don't, don't say that. Uh, the people who listen to this and you, the stories are meant to get better and, you know, you're twisted and turned and dodged. And we're speaking with Andrew Morrow from the class of 1984. Andrew, some great sporting memories and I appreciate you sharing those. What about, let me, or you, let me take you back into the classroom. Where academically, where did you tend to hang out? Was there a particular faculty subject area where you either shone or you really battled and, and are quite proud of your effort to stick with it? Yeah, look, I um, always was the math science stream. That's um, basically numbers was uh, my game. Um, English was the great stress, um, the ability to uh, to put pen to paper. As always, uh, still to the day is uh, still where I struggle. So um, it was certainly the fear and what I had to work hardest at. And um, although the maths uh, came reasonably uh, easy. I, I, it wasn't I didn't uh, not enjoy the English. I mean, I, I wasn't a great reader, but I did enjoy topics and discussing topics and reading books. I just wasn't a fast reader. Um, and I was lucky that in year 10 that I ended up with um, Mr. Carroll, Dennis Carroll. Um, and he was, yeah, I reckon his personality suited me in terms of his pretty straight, um, uh, straight down the line and gave me effectively a formula because that's what, you know, as a math student, so you're kind of looking for the magic formula just to get you um, over the line. So I had him in year 10 and gave me a little bit of hope that I was um, at least going to maybe crack a C um, and not uh, <laughs> hang around D. Um, year, uh, year 11 or year, um, form 5, um, a little bit more open, oh, I can't actually remember um, remember her name now, but I know uh, a couple of mates you know, absolutely loved uh, uh, one of the female teachers there. But you were asked in year 11, who do you want for English? And I know that I was, uh, I put Dennis Carroll down as number one and I was really sweating on being able to get into his class. So without him, um, in the end, believe it or not, um, maths ended up being my best subject, um, which knocked me for socks. Um, I think it put a lot of work into it, um, knowing full well, <clears throat> excuse me, that don't pass English, you don't go to university. So that was a fair 
a fair driver. Um, but he certainly, um, yeah, just uh, probably helped me, gave me some good feedback uh, in terms of, you know, structure of riding and so forth. I was always reasonable in class. I mean, I could discuss him and, um, you know, you get enough out of me. I wasn't sitting back uh, not participating. But to get the ideas in a written format on a piece of paper was um, was always a struggle. You are ageing yourself a little when you keep talking about getting your ideas onto a piece of paper. I mean, for me, I love pen and paper, and that is my preference. That is my go-to even today. Um, but nowadays, young people, you know, if they know which end of a pencil to use, it's uh, it's remarkable because technology is is certainly something that is. Uh, that has catapulted into our existence, and it's there are many benefits. There's many good things about it, um, but what I want to take you back to is a comment that you made there about Dennis Carroll, an English teacher. And in fact, to be fair, we've heard of Dennis a number of times in this podcast series. His name comes up a lot as an influential, uh, motivational, really personable teacher. But I love that he's been able to find your language in terms of a mathematical approach, a formula, and he's found the buttons to push for you that enabled English to come or to become possible for you to engage with. Any other teachers or any other moments that you feel they were really influential? This is the Inspired by Yarra podcast. Were you inspired by anything else at Yarra? Really, the um, I mean, that was a lot of my focus, especially in year 11 and 12, um, because it was the, um, you know, the risk or the weakest component. So the rest of it, you know, the, the maths um, and science, I mean, look, we had some fun in maths, um, and he's going to kill me because I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but uh, just the way he brought uh, maths and um, uh, computations and in, that, that was great. I mean, look... It all, it was reasonably, um, you know, school for me, was, I think I was lucky. It was, um, you know, relatively enjoyable, you know, 99% of the time. So, I mean, I love going to school. I love getting out and because, um, you know, there was a fair um, sporting component. I mean, coming to Yarra Valley, it was compulsory Saturday morning sport. Well, that was all new to me, but to me, that was fantastic. I, I was playing sport anyway, so um, that was great. So, uh, the... I found, I think I got through the education system, so to speak, um, relatively unscathed in terms of you know, negative uh, inputs. Um, it, it was really um, Dennis that took off the stress. The, the chemistry, physics, maths, uh, double maths was um, pretty um, uneventful. I, I don't necessarily think, uh, as Mr Banks was a was year, uh, year 11 teacher, um, I don't remember... You know, anything being you know hugely inspired. I mean, there was I, I probably got in with about four, four or five guys um, that were you know co- close mates that we're still close mates today, and it was more that camaraderie, I suppose, that um, you know they they were supportive or, or help help me if I was you know needed um, a little bit of help in it. But uh, it in general it was a fairly smooth run. It, it was nothing that was really standing out that I. Um, I sought or or was um, or had um, um, you know, some inspiration that kind of got me through. But looking back on it, I always look at um, Dennis and probably uh, one of my first um, employers as two pivotal or, inspira- or inspirational people in my life that's kind of set me up 
to um, you know, go ahead and do some things that um, you know, probably I wouldn't have done normally or you know, got me out of my comfort zone, I suppose. So somewhere between the inspiration of school and the inspiration of perhaps your first employer, there's probably some other things that are happening. Take us to the part of your journey where you combine a bit of maths, a bit of science, a little bit of English because you were now able to get pen to paper and get your ideas on paper. But what happens when you leave school? Do you do you go to uni? Do you go to TAFE? Do you go straight into the workforce? What happens next? Yeah, it's um, it was it was sitting there, and um, you know, I've got the reason why I probably got involved a couple of weeks ago when um, Rosie asked me to um, come uh, come back and talk to Year Tens. Um, since I've I've got a Year Ten myself, uh, son that's uh, doing the same thing was reflecting back on what happened for myself in year say 11 and 12 in careers um i don't remember <laughs> i kind of i remember i think maybe once we had a bit of career advice it was well what are my mates doing well the four of them are doing engineering oh well i'll do engineering now oh, that sounds all right it's mass uh, i enjoy that um there's a lot of engineering out there there's civil there's mechanical aeronautical whatever um the, the choice I remember kind of sitting down and just saying, well, I want to, I like being outside. I love digging holes in the veggie patch type of thing. Had a little bit of a green thumb. I'll pick the one that gets that I think will get me outside. So I picked civil engineering. Um, the marks got me into RMIT um, and I went straight, straight into it. In hindsight, I probably, um, and it'll be interesting to reflect with my son in a couple of years when he's at the same point, if I had have taken a year off, I nearly think it probably uh, would have made the um, tertiary four years a um, a, um, a more enjoyable experience. Um, it's I distinctly remember going into first year and thought, "My God, this is HSC on steroids. This is now not five subjects. This is now twelve subjects, twelve exams mid year, twelve exams at the end of the year, and." Um, Oh, oh, that's right, and there's no support. Oh, shit. <laughs> there's no there's no teacher. There's no Dennis Carroll kind of coming around on the table and saying, how are you going? And you're sitting on the back of the lecture theatre. So um, although you know, certainly Yarra Valley and, and going through the year uh, HSC experience got you the, um, you know, set you up with the system to get you into, um, into tertiary, uh, you still... Still had to really struggle hard, I think, to find your feet. I always didn't know whether, you know, if you got there through the private school system compared to the public school system, whether the public school kids were just a little bit self more self-motivated and a bit grittier and tougher to actually get through that, you know, move into this transition. Um, I certainly uh, had skill sets that I'd learnt um, and been taught. Um, I found actually, you know, reflecting back on it the other day is that I literally was able to once again go and find another three or four other students that we had common interests, um, and it was basically through sport that um, we had the common interests, and um, together the four of us went through the four years of university. Because I certainly lost my way second year, um, got sidetracked, didn't uh, put in the first semester, failed uh, nine out of 12 exams uh, first semester, uh, first half of uh, second year, and um really had to work hard to uh, pass them all by the end. Third and fourth year started to make sense. There was a little connection with actually what what was this course about in the real world. Um, fourth year, you dropped a lot of subjects. You back down to five subjects, back 
to uh, HSE conditions. And it was more relevant to what I thought um, this career or this uh, tertiary education was going to lead me into. So the it was a big adjustment. I think um, I was probably, I remember second year, I was nearly burnt out. It had been literally four years of just hard slog. It was a lot of um, like it was study every night. It was working Fridays, Saturdays um, to earn a bit of money. Sunday afternoon, I remember you know, from two o'clock till six o'clock, it was study again. Um, and that was, yeah, and and as much as, yeah, I mean, I'd much rather be outside but hitting a tennis ball or a golf club than uh, sitting in front of a desk um, studying. Um, so, yeah, it was a, for me, it was a grind and um, it did take, um, yeah, it did take till probably uh, third year to kind of make it a little bit more enjoyable rather than just a straight grind. So, um, yeah, so it got to the yeah, end of the fourth year and, um and that's when I did take a year off. Um, one of the one of my mates from Yarra Valley, um, he'd done the same. He was uh, saying save some money, and um, he was heading overseas. And that's that's all of a sudden just uh, became my passion um, is to travel. And so I finished up. Um, I was working on building sites in the city for um, about six months to save some money. Um, the year after, and um, did the classic um, you know, European. Um, uh, Ural Pass, and uh, and off we went. Met uh, my mate was in in the states. He flew across to London. I met him in London, and you know we spent about four and a half months, five months um, backpacking around um, the UK and, and England, and and that was probably a pivotal moment in my life. I suppose it um, it brought home what was important or what I really enjoyed doing in life, um, and that was uh, certainly uh, travelling and just getting my eyes opened up to, you know, what there is in, around the world and different cultures and food and and uh, I always loved history. Um, and I probably, um, I suppose there's, there's the numbers part of it as well that, um, that comes into history, but I loved uh, a lot of the reading that I did as a kid was historical books. They were uh, fiction, but with a historical um, um, basis. So English um, history um, through the Tudors, um, times and um and that's a gut traveling into environments where there was buildings that were a thousand years old and castles and and uh, and so forth that was um that really was what i got out of uh, the trip um so yeah travel for me is um probably core to uh, what makes me tick um I, i'm that's a fascinating little series of posts along your journey and you look back and and it kind of makes sense now i wonder where your parents sit in all of this you've and you yourself you've worked really hard you've got through hsc you've got what you needed to get you're into uni and you go wow this is like this is even bigger this is more this is harder and then you get to the end of that and you work for a little bit and you go actually I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to go and travel. Like, where where do your parent? What's your parents' perspective on that? Are they saying, no, 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 hang on a minute, you haven't done all this just to go off and uh, go skiving off around the world, or were they for it? Uh, look, they they were definitely for it. So, yeah, my parents were completely different. Um, had a father that um, started work at 13 and um, hated school, um, but played every sport under the sun. So I got the sporting component um, from him. Um, very, he was very competitive and, um, and kind of driven in, in that regard. But I 
sadly, I think I look back and he probably hated nearly every day of the 45 years of his working career. Uh, ended up in the bank and worked 40 years in the bank and, um, you know, and probably, yeah, just didn't, uh, didn't enjoy it. My mother, on the other hand, um, being the era that she came out of, in, uh, born in 39 through the, the war and, and so forth, um, in year 10, got 100 for maths, 100 for English, but had to leave school to go and work to bring money in, into the house. So academically um, got the, um, I suppose, got the, the brains uh, off mum to a certain degree. And mum's, uh, uh, mum's always been a massive reader. Dad's never written, uh, read. Um, but history has always been uh, mum's loved history. So travelling, had she had the opportunity, and she did later in life, which was um, fantastic, um, that's, she was all for go and, uh, go and see the world. So um, dad, I never really knew whether dad thought it was, um, <laughs> I'm blowing the opportunity and uh, hang on, I've just, um, you know, we've worked our backside to get you through a secondary education and, uh, you know, and supported you through the uh, tertiary and she's, um, you think, but I did, look, mind you, I mean, I worked, um, I was working 90 hours a week on building sites for the six months, uh, starting at 2, 2 a.m. in the morning and finishing at 6, 7 o'clock at night. It was a boom time. It was fortunate um, that uh, Jeff Kennett was in and um, all the um, exhibition buildings and everything was being built and I was working um, as an assistant surveyor. So awesome time to, um, even though I wasn't working in my field as such, I was exposed to um, construction, which um, I've always loved working with my hands and building. So to work on those sites and to get paid was uh, awesome. And then to go and travel, um, you know, what, what turned out, uh, or ignited the passion, I suppose, inside. Um, yeah, both parents were really, uh, really supportive. Dad had travelled to New Zealand, I think, on golf, on a golfing holiday for about three weeks. Mum had been out of Victoria twice um, at that stage. But I'm so grateful that, um, you know, Dad passed away probably 15-odd years ago. Mum, I then encouraged Mum to go, and she's travelled... Um, uh, once to New Zealand, once to Canada and three times to London and a couple of times with us and um, has been able to fulfil her passion for desire, um, yeah, for travel as well. So certainly, yeah, backed up by my mum um, into going and travelling. Fantastic. I, I And there is, there's no doubt that there's so much learning that happens and as you mentioned, your eyes are opened and all of a sudden there's these new perspectives and ideas and beliefs and and foods and cultures and buildings and architecture and you know it just goes on and on and on but I'm intrigued by your dad's approach to work really hard but work really hard for 40 years and hate it like that that's that's I think you know when I think of my own um my own background and my own dad and and grandpa and so forth there was maybe there was a time when that's just what you put up with but it's it's probably a little different now for, for your generation, for me, and certainly for the younger generation, those who are, you know, you, you mentioned your year 10 son and, and the, the, the young people who are around school nowadays. You've come out of university, you've got your degree, you've got a bit of work experience, you've got a bit of travel experience. Then what happens? Do you create a job that you love? Do you fall back into a pattern that's following dad and you're just doing what dad like dad did because he showed me what real hard work is all about and whether I like it or not doesn't matter. Like 
it seems to me that you're the sort of person who's going to make things the way you want them. Yeah, it's, um, it's actually, for me, luck. I've, for the first, when I'm 50, going on 54, so I've been working there 30 odd years, um, have not had to find one job in the six companies that are six, seven companies that I've worked for. And I look back and, um, and then you get to 54 and you do kind of reflect back and, um, and think about, you know, where you're standing and what careers he's going to end into. I came back not knowing what I was going to do. And a mate of mine uh, from uni found out that I was back two days after I got back and he was working for a council um, as a, he was a civil engineer. And he said, um, they've just had interviews. Um, you should ring up my boss. Um, which I did on the fr- uh, Thursday. He said, we'll come down tomorrow, Friday. And Monday morning at 10 o'clock, he rang me up at Brighton Council and said, do you want to start? And I thought, shit, I haven't even unpacked uh, <laughs> the bag at that stage. Um, I was just grateful to, um, I had no real um, possession. Other the, Out of the four mates that I went through university with, they all went on to jobs. Um, I took the year off, they all went on. And so two of them or three, uh, three of them went into private uh, industry. They were on lend lease and big um, construction jobs. And one guy, um, he went down to uh, Brighton City Council and he was the one that rang me and he said there was a job going. So um, once again, pretty fortunate to uh, get this job and have a boss who was quite um, progressive. I mean, councils uh, back in those days, um, there's nearly still the got a job for life. Um, if you start there at 24, you could be still there at 64. Um, it was a time uh, when councils um, uh, was going to get a shake-up, not that we knew at the time, but three years later, Jeff Kennett amalgamated all the councils in Victoria, so it shrunk from 280 to 87. So there was a big shake-up in the industry. But I was really fortunate that I literally had four and a half years there and I had a um, uh, the deputy city engineer um, kind of took me under his wing a bit and he loved golf and... Um, there was two golf courses at Brighton that we owned and he got me involved in a bit of golf course design. So um, I've always wanted, I've always been good at drawing and, and that creating um, um, uh, useful stuff. So in terms of the building, I mean, that's why you end up as an engineer, I suppose. But uh, so I was designing roads and, uh, and some greens and tees at Brighton Golf Course and it was a very small council back in those days. So I would get a chance to go out and, do the surveying and then work with the workers and actually um, control or project manage the job. Now, I, I knew nothing. I didn't know. and I, I mean, I knew how to dig a hole, but I didn't know what an excavator did or grade or all the rest of it. So it was a really quick learning curve um, and I was exposed to a fair bit um, very early on that um, probably as a young engineer, you probably wouldn't. You either stay in design and kind of do your three, four years of design, but I was kind of jumping in and out of designing um, Monday to Thursday, and then Friday I'd go out and actually watch it being built. Um, so that was um, that was certainly helped me a lot. And then there was a job came up at um, down at the Brighton City Council had their own depot, where back in the day we ran our own garbage trucks, um, plumbers, electricians, electricians, parks and gardens. And there was a works they created a works manager's position, and they, he was going to be in charge of. Um, the carpenters, the plumbers, the drainers, uh, the garbos uh, back in the days as they were known, uh, the street the street construction. And um, the, the deputy engineer, Ray Butley, said, um, you should go for that job. 
I said, I'm two years out. I mean, I wouldn't know how to run it. Uh, he said, no, no, you should go for it. Unbeknownst to me, the operations manager down there and him, they wanted an engineer. They wanted to, um, to kind of lift the profile, I suppose. I mean, most of the people, most of the role, uh, people that came into that works manager role had done 15, 20 years in the council. You know, knew how to lay asphalt on the road and crush rock and a bit of concrete and, and do other things um, in terms of all the council uh, workload. And so those guys were, they were 40, 45 going for those jobs. And here I'm at uh, 25, 26. And, you know, looking back at it, I know they set it up and, um, and they chose me. So I walked into a job at 26 where I had um, garbage guys that were ex-Wharfies uh, in their 50s. Um, and they just looked at me and said, we're going to give it to you. And they did. So for six months, I learned the uh, I learned how to communicate. <laughs> it was uh, they did ask me in the interview. They said, um, "So what's the biggest hurdle you think?" I said, "Oh, probably trying to get some respect out of um, the garbage um, our garbage workers." And they said, "Well, that's probably right." Uh, so what are you going to do about it? I said, "I'm I'm going to go run garbage." And garbage started at five o'clock. So they worked from five to eleven thirty, and the rest of the staff worked from seven till three thirty. So my second week there, I uh, snuck in at four o'clock in the morning into my office and uh, had my runners on and they were filling up the trucks uh, from the fuel station and um, I opened the door in the pitch black and they turned around and just looked at me and um, said a few choice words and, uh, they, and they said, what are you doing? I said, I'm here to give you a hand. So I jumped on the back of the truck. I didn't have a truck license, so I couldn't drive. So it was me and back, back in the days, we were literally picking the bins up and putting them into the back and uh, that size. I ran garbage for the week. I ran, we had three, uh, five crews and I ran a crew every day. Um, for me, um, it's always been, if I can't do it, then I can't tell anyone else to do it. I, I've got to understand um, how hard or easy it is. And I would never ask someone to do something that, you know, I wouldn't have a um, do it myself. So that, um, that was a bit of a uh, induction of fire, um, got through uh, a couple of arbitration um, uh, situations with some of um, some of my staff, which was uh, <laughs> even, even more fun. I was very fortunate the um, operations manager, Ron Smith, was a bit of a seasoned, he was a country guy, been in local government for probably 25 years, so he kind of knew in, ins and outs, everything. He took me under my wing at that stage and literally um, showed me um, basically the, the skills, the tools I needed if I was going to stay in this uh, construction business because it's, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a unique business. It's, um, it's not far off the dinosaur stage. Um, it's changed a little in 30 years, but it'd have to be one of the careers that hasn't changed a whole heap, very male-dominated, um, which I was so happy to see um, probably half a dozen um, young women at school, you know, year 10, 11 and 12, um, sitting in front of the screen with uh, in, the other day, um, not enough women are in uh, engineering and especially in civil, being the one outside, um, needs to probably change to um, provide a better work environment for um, for that uh, career. And, and just to confirm, when you talk about just the other day, you're talking about a thing that is available to our students at year 10 and maybe again at year 12 um, or maybe year 11, but speed careering where they get to sit down with uh, Yogs, Yarra Old Grammarians, and talk a little bit about what what work is really like. And so you get as a as a seasoned professional in um, 
civil engineering and council work and and golf design and and probably a couple of other things that we haven't yet touched on and you get to share your wisdom your experience your um, your highs, but also the challenges that you faced along the way. So, th- when you say just a couple of weeks ago, that's what you're referring to, yes? Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, I'd, I'd literally two weeks before had uh, forehand had um, through my son's school. Uh, there was an online um, careers, um, uh, probably an hour session, and I knew and Rosie had asked, and um, you know, this is um, literally the first time in 36 years that I've kind of got in contact with the uh, Yarra Valley. So <laughs> I think I went to the year one, uh, the 10th year reunion, and that was about the last time I've actually had any formal contact with um, with the, the, the school. But I could see, um, I look at both now, the opportunity, I think what you're doing or what the school is doing, um, bringing um, ex-students back to literally share. Now, I don't know effectively how much the kids got out of it, how the students got out of it, but... Um, it, to me, it was a much. Uh, it would give the students a lot more insight than listening to an hour of uh, a teacher or careers teacher without being uh, dismissal of what they gave. And it was a great session that my kids have. But you know, if my son had a computer scientist and that to talk to, um, hopefully there's a bit more of a spark and an interest to say, well, "Yep, that's definitely the uh, career I want to go into." Or oh, shit, I didn't know that. No, that's not what I want. I'll move somewhere else. But having said that, I think, um, yeah, I've been in the same industry effectively, jumped in and out uh, once, but um, for 30-odd years, I don't expect the students coming out now to stay in this industry, in their chosen initial industry, for probably more than three or four years. I think, yeah, that they may go through five different industries. Their skill set and, you know, obviously, the computer age um, enable, will enable them to do that. So totally different working environment to what, um, you know, I've been through myself and and previous you're quite right such is the way of of the world and and the working environment now but it it actually i think it's just a reconfiguration of the terminology because in your role when you 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 go down to council and you you get on and you get on with the tools and you're getting a little bit of this and then then you're designing and then you're actually on Fridays you're out building and seeing it construct and then you move into a management role within that nowadays we probably call that a couple of different careers a couple of different jobs in back in in your day in your generation it was kind of all under the same umbrella and you just but what helped you was that, that adaptability and that flexibility. And, and I think that that's a big part for young people today is to be able to have some initiative, be willing to jump in there at, at four o'clock in the morning to be there to, to try and get on the back of one of those trucks. And, and, you know, like, look, to be fair, a lot of teenagers today probably don't know how the bins are collected even today, let alone back in your day. Because, you know, if they come through at five, six, seven, for some of them nowadays, even after that, they wouldn't even see a rubbish truck. But um, you have done the hard work. And, and I mean, I, I have great admiration for, you know, football. And, and I remember a lot of the footballers used to be Garbos because it was a great fitness workout before the day even began. And, uh, but, um, I mean, yeah, just I guess there's just a tweak of, yes, we talk about, and I think you're right, they will have three-year careers, four-year careers, but they'll have five or six of them in their lifetime, you have probably done that without necessarily calling them different careers. Uh, you're probably right. I mean, I've, I've been fortunate that, um, you know, I've got 
poached from one job to another and the um, management or the I've worked in small companies, so um, predominantly worked in small businesses after I left the council into private enterprise that had up to, you know, 20, 25 staff. So the owner was, you know, I was working directly, you know, with them or, um, you know, directly under them. So um, if you don't get someone that um, a, a leader or an owner of a business that, um has some great leadership skills and um, compassion and all the rest of it, you know, work can be, in that environment, can be quite, um, uh, you just, there's no enjoyment whatsoever. If you've got to go to work and you've got a boss that's just going to give it to you every day, especially in this um, engineering construction industry, which, you know, certainly happens, um, there's there's no enjoyment whatsoever. I was fortunate that I had um, uh, probably two, two um, bosses that um, kind of, uh, I respected um, their, their knowledge um, and what they were able to impart on me was um, was was greatly appreciated. So that really did uh, set myself up. And then I got to the stage that um, I had decided that, um, and this was before kids, that um, I really there was a moment when I was travelling way back um, after finishing uni. We're going up to Scotland, my mate of mine, um, and I realised what I really was. Um, uh, wanted our life was I really wanted to um, to work to enable me to live a life that I really enjoyed rather than I was just going to um, live to work and so I was um, you now the council was great I started on a nine-day fortnight every uh, second Monday had off I mean I thought how good's this I'm getting paid and I'm only working nine days out of ten I thought that was great and then that, that cut short when I went into private industry. That was like, well, no, there's um, 24 hours in a day and there's seven days in a week, so you can pretty well work every one of them if, um, if it need be. So I'd got to the stage where I had done that um, and worked on a, a couple of big sites uh, around the tunnel and, and so forth and got a little bit burnt out and got, a, got, through, got to the stage that, you know, reflecting back, was I really following what really made me tick? No. <laughs> um, uh, the, the work-life balance was way out of whack. And so I always loved, um, I loved plants and uh, landscaping. So um, my wife and I, I, I threw it in um, for nine months. I built picket fences and a few other odd jobs. And then we, um, we started a landscaping business, uh, a bit of you know, your backyard blitz type of thing in domestic landscaping. And we did that for um, probably about five years. Um, had our son at that stage and... Um, made no money, but had a way of a time in terms of work-life balance. So, um, you know, talking, you know, 32 to 37 uh, years of age, whereas most of my mates were really, they were hitting their, probably hitting their straps at that stage. They'd moved up through management in, um, to a certain degree. Some of them were, you know, over in the States uh, running big projects. Um, but for me, um, we were travelling every... I've been fortunate to travel probably every four years. I'd take six weeks to eight weeks off and we'd go back to Europe. My wife's English. Um, she's over here, but her family's back home. So, you know, I continued on that, left, uh, did the backpacking. Um, four years later, took another six weeks off and traveled. Another four years later, went to another employer, but still took four weeks. So every four years, I nearly effectively every four or five years over the last 30 odd years, I've taken a extensive holiday of about six to eight weeks, so squirreled all my money away for about three or four years. Um, you know, didn't really, um, we weren't 
going to Bali or Queensland or whatever, um, but put it aside and would then go and immerse myself overseas somewhere for that six weeks. And that's that was, for me, that's what makes me tick and regenerates the battery. Um, so for four years, work really hard and then take a break. Um, otherwise, um, without knowing it, um, from my wife's point of view, you just effectively lose the plot and everything's about work and there's nothing else. Um, so I was conscious of that. So we did that um, and threw it all in and did the, um, the landscaping business. That was good fun. Um, it was just ticking all my passions in terms of I could design a backyard, I could go and build it and had a relationship with a client that was directly with them. And you step back and have a look at, you know, three weeks, four weeks later, you know, um, total change in their backyard. So that was, um, yeah, that's um, kind of the, the interesting part. But it's all, for me, it wasn't a matter of climbing um, this corporate tree um, in civil engineering. It really, um, I've got to keep making sure that I keep looking back and saying, what is it I want to get out of this uh, short time on this earth? And that's, um, you know, I've got to try and get some enjoyment. And for me, enjoyment is travel, food, family and stuff. So, yeah, work is, um, yeah, it's been, I mean, I've been fortunate. I love nearly every day of my jobs uh, that I've had. I've been doing, I've been involved in something that um, I've got enjoyment out of. That's fantastic, and and what a great aspiration for for young people, as well as those who have perhaps been working for twenty years or thirty years. There's there, I think there is still a desire, and maybe it's unknown to some people, even still today, that you can actually be working in a in a role with people with a purpose that is enjoyable, that brings you pleasure. It may not bring rewards in other ways, but it then comes back to your values, what's really important, what really matters. And and, and it seems to me that at the end of your uni, when you went and travelled, that really sparked a bit of a bug and you've kept feeding that and finding a way to be able to make that possible for you. And, and then I guess the extension of that is you and your family, which is is terrific. If, if things go really well for you, I don't know, let's say in the next five years, where have you been? Where's the destination? You know, at the moment, we're not really thinking of travel, but that'll turn. What's a destination that you'd love to go and visit and explore? Uh, look, the, look, we'd love to, in the last two trips, we've plonked ourselves in northern Italy for six weeks. Then um, 18 months ago, we plonked ourselves in um, northern Spain for six weeks. Um, so we would love to go to southern France and go and plonk ourselves there for about uh, six weeks to two months as well. Um, I really, though probably it sounds a little bit boring, I just love Europe. I, um, food is a major passion. So out of those three countries, um, it, for me, it doesn't get any better than uh, immersing myself into a slower um, lifestyle that um, uh, has a passion for food um, and so I'm right at home um, and I love the history um, from it. So that's, uh, that's the next aim. Um, we're, you know, really that's, we're, you know, had COVID not come in, I suppose, but we're still probably three or four weeks off. But with um, my kids, we'll, uh, hopefully one day they'll appreciate it. They've been overseas five times uh, in their short space of time. So they've 
seen or um, had, had you know, some fantastic experiences that um, I would have just died for um, had I been at their age. Um, but uh, so year, uh, what are we at, year eight and year 10, we've probably got to put it on hold until we get um, them through the next um, you know, four years anyway. So, um, and uh, whether they, they're invited on the next trip uh, as 20 year olds is probably another thing. But uh, <laughs> from my point of view, they, um, I'm really, you know, I, I'm really looking forward to 60 through years 60 to 70. Because to me, uh, I always look back and think 20 to 30, they were the golden years. They were absolutely free, no commitment to anything. What I earned, I spent. Um, Justine, my wife, has the same passion for travel. You know, we that, that, that was what life was about. You know, you saved, you worked hard and you nipped off overseas for six weeks and just uh, explored the world. I'm really looking forward. Hopefully, cross the fingers, health <laughs> remains um, the number one priority, I suppose, because to do it between 60 and 70 is really uh, something that it's um, uh, focused in my mind at the moment. So work is really just, I mean, I don't know, I was talking to my mates the other day, it's a thing that's kind of crept up on me over the last probably year and a half is I'm involved in sports design and construction from running tracks to tennis courts, hockey fields or whatever, you name it. Um, and it's a very small industry and throughout Australia there's probably about three or four of us that um, kind of uh, design and build across all um, sporting codes. For me, it's time to put back in um, the new 20, 22, 23-year-old engineers that are coming out. Um, it's to mentor them back into um, this sports field. And that's what I think uh, for the next, you know, probably four or five years is what um, I'd like to do is get into a role where I'm mentoring some 25, 30-year-old that's got, you know, come straight out and has got a passion to, you know, work and work hard and really, um, you know, impart the knowledge that you know 30 odd years worth in this industry and probably 15 the last uh, in the sports um, to pass it on and that would give me as much pleasure as what the first 30 years have done and then it's you know get to 60 and I'd still I can't see myself not work until 70 in some you know phase uh, whether it's you know part-time consultancy or whatever but there must be a um, a rebalance um, back into that life of what really you know makes me tick and that that's the the traveling between those years andrew you've you've spoken a little bit about leadership particularly at work and you had some great leaders in terms of business leaders and and they gave you opportunities and now you've talked about the idea of being a mentor and helping to guide and maybe shape the lives of young people coming through what for you is a good leader? What are some of the attributes? What are some of the characteristics of a, a good mentor or leader? What does that look like? Well, for, for me, kind of reflecting on that a bit, um, someone that's uh, it's got empathy, someone that's got actually compassion, <laughs> um, someone that actually wants to teach. I've been, um, I mean, I'm in an industry where the dollar drives the outcome. Um, it's a private industry business. It's like throwing money on the roulette table and if it lands properly, you make money. If it don't, you, you're out of business. So it, that, that actual nature of, of um, construction and, and is a very cutthroat um, business and therefore um, seen, have seen it a lot 
where big businesses um, will finish a project and two weeks later, you know, 15 staff engineers are sacked. There's no job to go on to. That's it. They're out the door. And there's no empathy that they have families, they have mortgages, they have whatever. Um, but that's the industry that I've, I've been involved in for 30 years. The best leaders that I've seen within that industry actually don't do that. They literally will um, make a sacrifice themselves, and predominantly it's a financial one, to keep you employed while we wait for the next job to turn up. And if you've, you know, to, to find a, uh, a leader in this industry that actually believes in that, that they're only as good as the staff that they employ, because at the end of the day, <laughs> um, they can't go and do everything that their business does. They literally are sitting at the top of um, a tree that creates effectively whatever they want to see as success, whether it's wealth, whether it's position in the industry or whatever, but it doesn't come um, by the sheer will of themselves. It comes through, uh, one, seeking good em uh, employees, understanding uh, what a good employee is, but then being able to give back and mentor them through the process. So there's got to be um, uh, certainly a lot of patience, but a willingness to, to train and a willingness to understand that we're all a human being and that we will fluctuate. You know, we will have bad times. It's interesting in our in the civil game is we work outdoors and we've just come in through winter and we've had a wet winter. So it's dark when we leave home and it's dark when we get home and we've worked through the mud and cold all through the winter. So morale and productivity, the, you know, the, the two draw, you know, more productivity that a boss is looking for fluctuates through just the, the sheer um, seasonal changes in, in especially in Melbourne <laughs> as compared to you know Queensland or somewhere and if you don't take that into consideration and you still whip them as hard as you can in winter as in spring and summer um, there's a massive change or, or turnover in the industry people just get fed up with it you know you hit the kick the dog as hard as you can well one day the dog's just going to you know bite and, uh, and nick off and the businesses that I've been fortunate enough to work to have had long-term uh, visions or long-term employees. I always looked for when someone asked me to go and work for someone, I said, well, how long have the staff been working there? And you know, I've been working there 15 years, 20 years. And to me, that was an indication that there was a leader there that either inspired or provided a environment that the staff wanted to stay. I mean, we don't, you know, my dad might have worked for the bank for 40 years. I mean, I've had eight jobs in the 30 years and I believe my son will probably have 30 jobs. So loyalty to, to one business um, is no longer um, a given um, and it's, it's, um, there's so much opportunity out there. But for a leader to understand they're only as good as the people underneath, so to have people keep turning over and changing will make it very difficult for that business to be successful. So you must find um, some, as a leader, some way to engage your staff or your people that are working for you to stay with you. Now, I don't, I mean, I'm, you know, I've got uh, probably three young engineers working for me. I've got, you know, some in their 30s um, and I've got one guy that's you now 74 um, and still loves working. Now, they're all required different um, approaches to, I know the 74-year-old, yeah, he's not going anywhere. He's he just enjoys what he does, so he'll stay there for whenever. The thirty-year-old, he's 
happy to work with me because you know we've worked together for about seven years but it's nearly time for him to go and work somewhere else so i've got to be prepared to say you actually need to go and work somewhere else for your own growth and your own personal uh, enjoyment the um the young 25 year olds well you know they i should give them two or three maybe four years of my time and then say you know once again now it's time for you to go um if you're look as a leader if you're looking people as just purely just little objects to say well i need to get x amount of you out of you every day um i just think that's um just leading businesses down the, the wrong path and then through the 80s and 90s and uh in, in that i think that's where a lot of businesses have gone um compared to where 60s and 70s and it might be old-fashioned and that but that loyalty goes both ways um and loyalty you know provides security and happiness and all the rest of it so but um for me a, a leader's got to be someone that can put the others um first before your own personal needs because it comes back in tenfold Absolutely. I really appreciate your ability to reflect on your own journey and now in a position where you are a leader, where you are a mentor, to be able to realise maybe through your own family, your own kids, but also through maybe some recent contact with young people and kind of where they're at and what they're exposed to and what's likely for them. You're able to see how, and you said it yourself, now it's time to give back. Now it's time to contribute. And look, I really appreciate your time and your generosity of of storytelling and and sharing. I wonder if you can give back a little more. um, And that is, is there a, a, an app or a habit, or a routine, a rhythm that you have in your life, whether it be a daily thing or a project by project thing that you have found has stood the test of time, that helps you to show up as your best self. And and I appreciate on one level, it's going on holidays every four or five years, but is there something that's perhaps even more regular than that, that is a go-to for you? I think that the thing that's made me ticking, got me out of bed on a every day is um, a desire to um, uh, be as good as or build quality things. For me, it's all about quality rather than quantity. So, and you only, for me, you only get out what you put back in. So if you want to build something of uh, quality or you want to, um, you know, produce quality work, then it requires a lot of effort and hard work and and it doesn't come easy so it's a matter of doing it on a on a regular basis i'm not I've, i come from a conservative background anyway but um i'm not the gambler i don't get out of bed looking for the quick and easy solution uh, result um i'm um boring as a bat proverbial in terms of i love routine i love honing a skill to um something that just um, doesn't you don't have to think it is just something that is by nature um, you you do and that's um, always um, for me uh, nature's important um, so being outside and and being out early and just being able to do something that uh, improves the, um, the environment that we're in um, and the quality of um, the environment to make things easier or better or you know something more pleasant is what's um, is probably what drives uh, me the most, but it, it's it's that desire for quality, um, and is is the real 
driver for me um, that makes you know, that makes me tick, I suppose. And because you of the game that you're in, there are things that are still standing that are still you can still wander past or you can go and lean on or you can go and experience today that you've had your literally by the sounds of it not only the design concept stage but your your hands and your fingers have helped to create what's one project that you've been part of that you're really proud of like one that you you know you were very happy to take your kids to and go look what dad made well, there was a lot of streets, but um, showing my wife Kerb and Channel over the years, it just lost its interest very quickly. So um, as much as I was proud of that little bit of Kerb and Channel, all those um, the, the blue stones are laid in Nicholson Street that are still there and will be there for another 100 years, um, being involved in uh, the redevelopment of Melbourne Park in 2008 and changing the surface, um, I was in, uh, part owner of a company that we changed the surface from the green to the blue, the plexi cushion, and then... It was such a great um, eight years of where they re- they were redeveloping. So we were involved in the design, the rebuild of the 13 outdoor courts at Eastern Plaza. And then when Margaret Court was putting the roof over, I was the designer for the court surface and the drainage and uh, and then built it as well. So um, to have in, an involvement in a project um, that big, um, which um, is literally a world-class venue, there is no... Um, other venue from a tennis perspective that uh, around the world um, that is any better. If, if not, it, it, is, um, it is an elite uh, venue from a player's perspective and from a, um, a spectator's perspective. So to know that I've been you know, part of that uh, design and you know, been able to actually physically go and lay the drains and lay the court and lay the, the blue paint, um, it's been a great um, uh, don't know, but satisfaction, I suppose. Uh, are there are there any trade offs to that? Like, do you get a, a an annual pass that lets you walk in the door anytime you want to go and see concerts, sporting events? Do you have like, do they know when you're coming? This is the irony of it all. Is uh, we had the contract for um, we have the contract for five to eight years to resurface the courts every year, and when the opens on. Um, part of the contract was that we had to be there from the first ball that was hit to the last ball that was hit in case something happened. If it was, a, if, uh, if it was back in the McEnroe days, if you took a big chunk out of centre court, um, I would have to go out there and patch it and make sure that it was playable. At no stage in that eight years did I ever get a ticket that our company didn't buy itself. We got one president's dinner <laughs> invitation by Tennis Australia um, with, and there's no sour grapes, but we were effectively a contractor. And even though you know, our service to Tennis Australia, in my view, was second to none, um, the quality of what we produced and, and our service to be there whenever they required us um, was second to none. Um, it was uh, interesting that, I mean, so when they, when they rebuilt the MCG and they did the Southern Stand, Part of the deal that the unions got up there was that the workers that were there got tickets to the grand final. They got memberships. That didn't happen with Tennis Australia. <laughs> I can tell you that now. So I still buy my mum a pass for each year so she can go for a day pass. And if I go, I'm still the same. I can walk a, you know, I've been on, you know, um, change of um, courts uh, and when the, um, at the end of each game and I'd run out on the court and check everything and that. You know, I've been all over every millimetre of those 40-odd courts. 
but it does not give me one uh, iota of um, <laughs> extra benefit um, in the past. It's just, uh, yeah, interesting. I've even, right. We rebuilt Carlton's football ground uh, two years ago, and um, I suppose until I uh, actually start uh, producing the goods, um, yeah, I won't get back uh, there at uh, being a Carlton supporter and all. I, I won't get any free tickets uh, <laughs> into Icon Park either. No, no. It's a, you're right. That is a an interesting back end perspective on on how these places operate. And uh, but it sounds to me that you're going to be the type of leader who's going to be aware of those things that uh, might might be able to bring about change. Andrew Morrow from the class of 1984, you have been generous with your time. I want to move now into just a short and sharp moment where I'm going to fling a whole lot of short, sharp questions at you. And and it might be that some of them are, are, are on the tip of the tongue and others you might have to kind of dwell on a little bit longer. But this is the uh, the quick fire round. And I wonder if we might begin with, can you recall what was the house that you were in when you were back at Yarra? Uh, annals. And were annals any good back in your day? Uh, in the middle. In the middle okay. in, in terms of uh, athletics, soccer, football. Yeah, in the middle. You've mentioned your creativity. I wonder, was there a house, uh, uh, sorry, a, a drama or a musical or a performance that you either gave and delivered or you were in the audience that, uh, that comes to mind? The best I ever did was being prompter on uh, Macbeth in the background where no one could see me and that's exactly where I wanted to be. So, no, uh, standing up on stage and uh, public speaking um, still to this day is something I despise. When you were back at school, what would we likely see in your lunchbox? Oh, okay. Um, uh, pretty good on wraps, um, sultanas, carrots, apples. Uh, had a fairly, even though a small skinny bloke, had a fairly substantial uh, lunch. And who made it? Uh, yeah, mother. Good on your mum. I'm glad that you now still buy her a season pass or at least a day pass to the tennis. <laughs> What was your first car that you remember owning and driving? Had a little uh, Gemini uh, GL, um, bought from down in Ringwood. Um, had that, jeez, uh, uh, that was actually, believe it or not, it was uh, nearly, yeah, the, the first car. And then I was, uh, you get into construction, the things called utes are available and uh, they get given to you. <laughs> so, yeah, haven't, uh, it's probably about the only, uh, I've bought a family car since, but that was it, a white Gemini. Would you prefer house swimming or house ats? Uh, I, I didn't mind both. I was um, probably at that stage, I hadn't swum a lot, but uh, yeah, athletics, running, long Did distance running. Yeah, okay. Did you have a nickname when you were back at school? <laughs> yeah, Muscles. Oh, and because? Because there was, uh, there was a lack of. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a, uh, a piece of work that you're particularly proud of, whether it was an artwork, whether it was a, an essay that you really slaved away at, or whether it was a, a, a test that you got, you know, full marks for that you can remember? Uh, look, probably uh, actually it was uh, in the jewellery class um, in year 10, um, working with my hands again uh, in metallurgy, making uh, jewellery. Um, mm. Made a few pieces there that I'd never, cut, I'd never had the opportunity to do that. So I'd done woodwork before. But um, Yarra didn't have a woodworking class, so I went into that. So, yeah, certainly remember that and um, certainly happy with how I ended up uh, in the tennis team and, um, and uh, in the soccer team. So um, playing in the first um, in year uh, 10 and, and 11 was um, 
was a good achievement from my perspective. Absolutely. I wonder if I can offer a phrase to you. It's our school motto, Lavavi Oculus, and whether you recall what that means and what does it mean? Yeah, look, I, to be honest, I, I was asked that the other day, and I, I mean, for me, it, um, you know, lifting your eyes up was something that there was opportunities out there, and if you've got the courage to uh, go out and, and grab them, get out of your comfort zone, um, to me, that's what it, what it means. I mean, it was always something that um, I needed a little bit of a cattle prod to push me out of my comfort zone, but once I got out, um, the enjoyment that came from new experiences, um, so for me, that's probably what it uh, would represent. Hmm. My final question, and I want you to answer the question and then answer the question, and, and that is, what's the one question that you really wanted me to ask that I haven't asked? Um, that's a good one. I suppose um, what has... Um, What's been the most important facet of your last uh, yeah thirty odd years since leaving school? I think you meant school um, is is a great um, you know, it's a great time in a young person's life. There's a lot going on mentally, physically, and that at the same time. I look back on it. Um, for me, um, had you asked, you know, are you still in contact with anyone? Um, I've got four mates that I met halfway through year nine, and they're my closest mates. Um, one I travelled around Europe with and you know, out of the four of us, I wasn't closest to him, but he just happened to be in Europe at the time and we just hit it off. We you know, never had an argument. We were, we're, dis- we're, we're dissimilar enough that, um, that we don't um, do the same things. But, um, yeah, for me, um, to have those four guys and um, travel through life and through kids and family and travel and still to be in contact, even though... Um, yeah, not involved directly at the school. Um, having those lifelong experiences with those uh, with those mates there. Um, had you asked me about that, um, or, and and that, then that's uh, probably the question that because that's um, you now when you have highs and lows, um, you rely on you know those guys. I mean, they know me intimately from first time being drunk to first girlfriend to first child to you know first you know job and and all the rest of it. So. Um, when you think back on it, you're 15 or 55, you know, they've been there you know, a significant part of my life. We might catch up three times a year, if, if that. Um, we might only talk six times a year. But still to this day, um, we can see each other at a restaurant with family and it's just like one o'clock back to year 10 and, um, <laughs> and mucking around. Is, uh, yeah, that's... Um, yeah, had you asked me about the, you know, any connections and school friends are you still in contact, um, I would have liked to uh, yeah, talk about them. Beautiful. Well, you just have, and I appreciate that because it, I like the, the, the full circle that we've come from you coming to Yarra not knowing anybody and then getting connected fairly quickly, perhaps through sport, but there's obviously some similarity there amongst your mates and then those mates some 40 years later still being a core part of your life through all of the highs and lows and twists and turns. And I, I, I guess they even appreciate your, your curb and channel that you've made over the years as well. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> 
Andrew Morrow from the class of 1984, thank you for your time. Thanks for taking us on the journey. Thanks for sharing your reflections, your observations and your wisdom uh, that you've gained by having a go and by being flexible and adaptable to turn your hand to whatever presents. And in the midst of it, to me, it seems, you've been willing to have a go, but you've also been methodical and strategic along the way and, and bringing those things into your experience that you've really wanted and that you've valued. I appreciate that you have been inspired by Yarra and are an inspiration to Yarra. So we give you our thanks and appreciate your time. Thank you. I appreciate your time, Paul. I've uh, enjoyed uh, as much as it's out of my comfort zone a bit. I've enjoyed the chat. There you go. What a storyteller. What a talker. Can talk, but did really well, despite him suggesting that <laughs> it's not necessarily within his comfort zone. He did a terrific job, and I really appreciate his time and his, as I mentioned, his wisdom, his generosity, his availability and willingness to share from his life experience thus far. Love that notion of purpose and the idea and the intent that he has every day to do the best he can, to build, to create quality, not necessarily quantity, but to do the best he can with what he's got and get the best out of the people that he works with and works for and works alongside. and and indeed amongst it all is seeking to get the very best out of himself. I hope that you did enjoy this conversation and if you did, we'd love you to give us a rating and a review in your podcast player. That helps more people to get to know about the, the, the podcast and uh, just helps to maybe grow the audience a little bit and, and allow others to come and find us too. Yogs are encouraged to look us up on LinkedIn and join the group Yarra Old Grammarians Connect. It helps you to stay in touch with the wider Yog community. Of course, we're available. You can reach out to us at podcast at yvg.vic.edu.au. We'd love to get emails from you. You can find us on the web. And I hope you'll join us again next episode when we sit down with another Yarra Old Grammarian and see how they too have been inspired by Yarra. My name's Paul Joy and on behalf of everyone here at Yarra, I want to wish you another day of inspiration where you go out there with your personality, with intentionality to make a positive impact in the world around you. Mm -hmm.